a playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today we're talking about the great maple syrup heist. I'm so excited. We'll start as we usually do. What surprised you about researching this episode? I think the drama is what surprised me because I knew, obviously, in by, by its name, it indicates to you that maple syrup was stolen. But I didn't necessarily understand the environment uh, which created um, the heist to happen, all the drama in Quebec with maple syrup um, and the rebels versus the Federation, which we're going to get into. But I didn't know about that. I didn't I didn't anticipate that. Should we start by talking about the FPAQ? Liv, do you want to try and say that in French? No, I don't. Okay. I don't. And in fact, I was relying on you to say it. So we're, we're going to do this in true Anglo fashion. And I, I, I really do apologize in advance for any attempts at French words or names. Um, but we're, we're doing our best over here. Uh, listen, the French language education in Ontario and Manitoba is, that, is, is not issue. good. <laughs> it's an issue that we're deeply concerned about, but we don't take responsibility for it. Okay. The Federation formed in 1966, but the Federation as we know it and what we know it for um really formed in 2003 when a majority of federation members voted to make production quotas mandatory such that farmers could only sell a certain amount of product each year and farmers would be required to sell through the federation and its agents so while the industry was somewhat unreliable before um, having quotas and having it be controlled having the product be controlled by the federation created stability in the prices and allowed the federation to really control um, the global price of maple syrup um, because the federation controls about 72 percent of the world's supply and there's a lot of different numbers out there yeah um, it's something north of 70 um, they're essentially able to set the price of maple syrup there are producers who really like this system because it allowed them to um, have a stable income because the price is effectively set and controlled they can actually get um, more readily get business loans for maple syrup operation because it's a more it's more reliable and less of a mm-hmm. risky investment for a lender, for example. Um, and I think I think everyone seems to acknowledge that the federation started with really good intentions, mm-hmm. um, and it seemed to be an honest an honest attempt to regulate the market, help bring stability, as you say, to the farmers. Um, so that even if they have a bad year, their income is not necessarily going to be affected. And also has dramatically increased the price of maple syrup as a result. Right. And created um, an arbitrarily high um, high price for maple syrup. Right. So how it works in a little more detail is that each producer is able to send a fixed amount to the Federation for sale each year. Um, the quota that was established in 2004, producers are required to join as members of the Federation and they have to give over their harvest to the Federation who inspects, tastes, and grades the syrup. 
Um, this, whatever is within the quota is sold immediately, but the surplus, if there is any, is stored in the, feder in the Federation's reserve. And the reserve will be very important to this story. Um, so during a bad season, the Federation will dip into the reserve um, to make sure that the prices can remain stable um, and keeping income for the producers stable. And can I just say that the producers who um, overproduce, so once they reach their quota, the rest that goes to the reserve, they don't get paid for mm -hmm. until it comes out of the reserve. Um, and yeah, I think that's just a side note that uh, will lead to some angst <laughs> from the producers in this story. So why do people compare the Federation to the mafia or literally just call it a cartel or a legal cartel? Well, I don't know that much about cartels, <laughs> but it's, I guess, I guess it's in the sense that it's so overly regulated. And so the Federation can is arbitrarily setting how much maple syrup can be produced how many um trees uh you can tap on your property and they have authority legal authority to enforce all those regulations so they can come to your house and do site visits or your um sugar shack um they can do audits without a warrant they can put cameras up to uh to monitor your activity and um I think that they can even have someone come in and watch what you're doing. So it's it's like an it's like a big brother of the uh, maple syrup producers. So when you kind of start getting into the technicalities of like the 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 un um, unsupervised control that they have over the the market, you can kind of see why the maple syrup producers are starting to. Um, feel a little bit restricted and um, why they want to rebel <laughs> against it, this control. Yeah, the Federation has a really tight grip and the fact that they are able to uh, investigate like that, they hire private investigators. Uh, apparently they have about 400 investigations underway at any time. There's reports that they regularly, inspectors will regularly patrol corner stores and small supermarkets to make sure that producers aren't, you know, doing small side deals with, with little stores and that. Um, it's compared to OPEC because of how, like Quebec's market share of maple syrup, because they have so much of the market, they're really able to set and control the price, much like OPEC sets and controls the price of oil. But in terms of, um, I think, the mafia comparison, it's its exactly what you say, Liv. I think it's also the intimidation factor that we'll get, that we'll get to a little bit more. Um, but this, not all producers have been, you know, accepting this quote, reign of terror by the Federation. Not all producers are taking this lying down. Um, certainly the heist has renewed criticism about the Federation and how it runs, but there are plenty of people who have been trying to rebel against the Federation who have, you know, continued to sell outside the system and the black market has cropped up where people sell, where producers are selling their products, any product, amount of product that's over quota on the black market to be exported. One of these so-called rebels called Richard Valliere would be very important to our story. Um, interestingly, the Federation maintains, it's always this number and I can't find... <laughs> this number anywhere and I don't know how they know this 
but they always say between somewhere between 75 and 80% of producers are happy with this system. They want the stable income the system almost guarantees. But I, I really can't find <laughs> this number anywhere except from the Federation. So are people happy with it? There are there are plenty of people speaking out. And if you, you read anything about this, there's plenty of like small producers who are who are um, complaining, who are fighting their fines because they're getting fined for selling on the black market. Certainly the Netflix documentary follows one such producer and she's like spent quite a bit on her legal fees to to try and get these fines overturned and trying to get them declared unconstitutional unsuccessfully. However, anything about this whole thing? An interesting thing to know that's happening in the background of Canada is that the rest of Canada isn't like this. The rest of Canada that produces maple syrup is a free market. And New Brunswick in particular borders on Quebec and they are a free market. And so that the kind of close link to New Brunswick and Quebec becomes important in this story uh, for how they end up getting it onto the black market um, and the, the means through which they go to export to the rest of the world, really. The year um, of 2011 was a banner year for the Federation. And they had an excess of their reserve uh, amounts. So their warehouse could no longer hold uh, the amount of maple syrup that they had. They had so much maple syrup. Um, And so they needed to rent another warehouse. So they rented it from a Vic Caron who um, had no real connection to the maple syrup industry at large. But he knew about it. And he knew that it had um, value. Now that we've talked about the Federation and how they maintain control of the industry and the ensuing discontent by some producers, and now you understand how this situation could be, as some say, ripe for a heist. Let's talk about the heist itself, the investigation, but we'll start with the discovery. As Liv said, the Federation had so much surplus they needed a third warehouse to store um, the surplus of maple to store their reserve when staff were taking their yearly inventory in 2012 um, they tapped on barrels found some of them were hollow Um, they should weigh about 600 pounds but they could hear a hollow sound Um, they found some barrels i think a few barrels completely empty like this others were rusting, which matters because maple syrup doesn't cause condensation. It doesn't sweat. Um, So the rust was an indication that those barrels were filled with water, which we were, which they were. The Federation calls the police. They get, they get everybody on the blower. They get them down there. There's the cops, the provincial police, RCMP, U.S. Customs, uh, and they embark on this huge investigation where they question about 300 people, issue 40 search warrants, Um, I think 250 investigators working on it, trying to find this maple syrup. So when all was said and done, they discovered $18.7 million worth of syrup was stolen, which was 9,561 barrels. 
and about 12.5% of their reserve. This is the biggest theft in history in Quebec. I think it's the biggest Canadian heist as well. Um, and let's talk about how it was done first by talking about the players. Liv brought up Avi Caron, who we know is not a syrup guy, but was clearly interested in the industry. Um, people have reported he has, I had a hard time verifying this, so this comes with a big, a bit of a <laughs> disclaimer, that he's connected to the Italian mafia. We do know he was formerly convicted of fraud. He was also the owner of the warehouse in St. Louis de Blanford that was being used as the third warehouse to store this part of the reserve. Hmm. Well, I guess I should also say that I have heard that his wife was actually the owner, so we probably shouldn't completely write her out of the story. <laughs> Good to know. Um, Sebastian Utrecht was the driver, right? Which truck, we'll explain. He, yeah, he was just a truck driver of a transporter of maple syrup. Richard Valieras, known for his activity on the black market, known as a quote, barrel roller, which is somebody who deals with the black market. Um, he's been billed as the ringleader. Um, I mean, it seems like they all hatched this plan. Um, and then finally we have, there's a lot more people involved um, and more people went uh, were charged and went to trial, but these are kind of the four main people. And the fourth person is the buyer, Etienne St-Pierre, I guess he's like a black market seller of maple syrup. Um, yeah, he's like a middleman. Yeah. From New Brunswick. From New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. So I guess like all of the reason why these four people are important is because without one of them, this doesn't happen, basically. Um, so, you know, the driver, um, Utras, Sebastian Utras, he is the connector between Avic Caron and uh, Richard Vallier. And having all this maple syrup that's worth a ton of money is all well and good. But if you can't sell it um, and you can't profit off of it, you know, you're just having some tasty pancakes, right? And so Utrecht connects these two. Um, and I think Caron ends up approaching Valieras with this plan to sell um, this stolen syrup located in his warehouse. Um, and he knew people like the other point I want to emphasize, like people know about Valieras. I think he was like, honestly, almost automatically a suspect because he was such a notorious barrel roller brokering deals between independent farmers, um, and unauthorized distributors like, uh, Etienne St. Pierre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Federation have a long list of people, um, who hate them, but he's someone who's definitely at the top of their list. So he was like immediately, uh, <laughs> suspected by the federation shall we say and pretty vocal about it let's get into the system let's get into how they actually pulled this off or you know did they pull it off they got caught but (laughs) how this whole situation worked sure so i think what's kind of interesting to start with is that this uh you know reserve it sounds very sophisticated it sounds very uh fancy um but it wasn't it was just an old warehouse and um there was no real security there was like a padlock and there was a security guy who checked on it every now and then but there was no like real intense security around this warehouse so so the plan was that they they and i mean 
they had the keys. Like <laughs> it's not even that they uh, were, they couldn't be charged with breaking and entering because they had the key. Um, and they would go in and of course these barrels of maple syrup are really heavy. They're like 600 pounds, right? So they had to have all this equipment uh, to essentially move the barrels into the trucks. And uh, then, you know, that's where the driver came in and they had a whole team of guys who would do this. They would take the barrels, um, pump out the maple syrup from the barrel. Cause I, I gather it's not as easy as just like dumping it. There's a certain procedure that you need to do, do to actually remove the syrup from the barrel. And then um, they would fill up, there was a nearby lake and they're, maple syrup removing factory that they had and they would fill up the empty barrels with water and then return the barrel to the uh warehouse the the federation's warehouse so they couldn't it wasn't a case that they just did one night of removing a whole bunch of barrels and then bringing them back it was they did this over the course of a year and um like katie said they in total stole how many barrels nine uh 9500 yeah and so um a huge amount but it wasn't a one-night job it was over a longer period of time do you have anything to add to that no that's about it i think that's something that's it was it was such a gradual process and something i haven't heard emphasized was that they got away with this for about an entire year which i think is pretty we'll talk about how they fumbled some parts but i do think that's pretty impressive i mean they end up running away with six million pounds of syrup well to be honest like i think the plan itself was really good but then what ended up happening i think probably because they had been doing it for so long they probably felt a little more comfortable which led to the demise they got lazy they got lazy because so what happened was as the year progressed, the, the lake by their factory froze over. And so it wasn't as easy to get water to fill up the barrels again. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you think that that would have been like a something that they raised. So that what they ended up doing was just returning the barrels um, with nothing in them. And what I, what I forgot to mention before was that in the interim, uh, while they took the barrels and dealt with all the syrup removing, uh, they replaced them with identical barrels so that at any given time, um, there was never less than what the reserve or what the Federation thought that they had. And this was important because they knew that, um, the Federation did audits and they obviously didn't know when the audit was going to happen. And so they wanted to make sure that at any given moment, if there was an audit, there wouldn't be a missing barrel. And so they had that parts like there's some skill there, right? Like they had to find the exact color of white paint for these fake barrels. They had to recreate the Federation sticker on them. Like it's not a completely idiot job like there were some finer points and details which they had clearly ironed out but then it doesn't make sense to me it's like okay this it's really really thought out it makes perfect sense why they're doing it so why if you're spending all this time making the same stickers as the federation had on the barrels would you not spend time making a liquid that is maybe a little bit heavier than water or at least looks like syrup or you know so that you could like kind of like really copycat the the look and the 
the weight of the maple syrup barrels. Like I, I was like, well, then this- your overhead goes up, right? Like they're just stealing, really stealing water from the pond, whatever pond it was. Yeah. The pond, the pond nearby, right? They were getting, they were getting a free product to fill it up with. <laughs> it was, sure. oh yeah, it was the pond adjacent to uh, Valier's dad's maple syrup farm, which was kind of their uh, operation headquarters. Sure. Um, so if they're talking about, if they're going to, you know, add some gelatin to make it more syrupy. They're going to, they're, the point of this is, you know, I know, but they made run away so- with free syrup. I know, but they made so much money that it's yeah. like, it seems like it's a little bit they of got like greedy. a teeny bit of overhead that, that, uh, probably would have paid off, you know, like they could have kept this going for years. Otherwise, I think. Well, until um, they open the barrels. Well, until they open the barrels. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know what's because, well, the thing is, is like, I don't know that when they, I mean, listen, I don't know anything about the auditing process, but it seemed to me that the only reason that he started looking into the barrels um, was because this inspector was uh, climbing on the barrels and one of the barrels underneath him started to fumble and these barrels are supposed to weigh 600 pounds. And so he was like, I'm, you know a man this shouldn't this shouldn't be like or you know what I mean like he's like I you know don't weigh that much that the the barrel shouldn't be able to hold me Mm -hmm. um and so he he actually almost like fell to his death as a result so it's kind of lucky that (laughs) he didn't but he's okay um and so it was only because he was like this barrel doesn't feel as secure as it should that he went knocking on the barrels to see is it hollow is it not and then when he found one that was hollow he opened it up and found that it was empty so it's that in in that retelling of the story it seemed to me that that wasn't normal practice he wouldn't have otherwise opened up the barrels um to check if it was syrup because he had no reason to believe that it wasn't but then obviously there were other signs like they were starting to get rust on the barrels which wouldn't have happened so like there was a lot of clues but he wouldn't have ever like looked into it had he not fumbled on the barrel you know another little piece of this is that they also use a different kind of forklift like the the federation has these has these type i don't know what the definition of a forklift is but it's a, a it has a machine which can lift up and move the barrels without really damaging the barrel at all like it almost like it looks like it hooks onto them um you can see videos of it in the netflix documentary um, and they don't really leave much of a mark on the barrels. Some of the barrels that had clearly been tampered with, they had some damage on it that, cl- that was clearly done by a forklift because it was just, they just wouldn't really ever use a forklift or whatever. And one of the ways that they, I think that, I think Valieres became a suspect. I'm pretty sure it was he. Well, this was like the. Rented un- it in his own name. Yeah. Like this was like kind of the undoing of 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 them and this is what like that was the clue that i think ultimately really connected um Vauvalier, first of all to it and then um then it quickly unraveled mm-hmm. so i guess once they realized a forklift had been used the investigators just started going to all the forklift rental places and like looking at the list yeah. of who'd been renting them um and one had been rented by Valier, which they immediately flagged as suspicious right because um I, I I've heard some conflicting reports about how well the police was doing until the Federation got involved and basically kind of said to the police, look, there's 
there's only a certain amount of people that could pull off a heist like this because not everybody in the world knows what to do with maple syrup. And having a barrel of maple syrup is essentially valueless if you can't um, sell it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they said, okay, here, here's the hit list of people, <laughs> of people we think could be involved. And then, as soon as there was a uh, like some kind of match, right, um, with the forklift, it was a huge, you know, um, huge sign in the right direction. And then, yeah, among the many questionings that they went through, uh, the driver was among them, uh, Sebastian, and he essentially confessed to everything and was really the undoing of this whole operation so you just can't you can't get sloppy people who are just gonna sell everybody out because it, it seems like they had connections for uh valier obviously but then sebastian just like really hung everybody out to dry and said and i guess his defense was that he was just a driver and he didn't know what he was what, what he was transporting but of course that it came to light that he was really the connection between the the two men and he was a very essential part of this whole operation so let's talk about the trials so there were a lot of people involved in this plot um but the two main trials of interest to us are the valiere's trial and the etienne saint pierre's trial um evie caron uh, pled guilty i'm not sure what kind of deal he got so but there was no, no big trial <laughs> for that <laughs> get a deal what did he get he didn't. He didn't get any leniency. That's what they said. He oh. he attempted to by pleading guilty, and then they were like, "Nope, we don't <laughs> like people who steal maple syrup." And I guess he had a previous conviction too, right? Yeah, didn't help him. So the Valieres trial um, and and ongoing uh, judicial proceedings. Um, there's a there's a bit of a judicial history there too. The Valieres argued, or his counsel argued, that he'd been forced to buy the stolen syrup and replace it with water. He was threatened by an unnamed man carrying a gun. Um, you know, if you're going to point the finger at somebody carrying a gun, you probably want to name him. Um, but the, the jury didn't buy this defense and instead he was found guilty of theft, fraud, and trafficking stolen goods. He was convicted in November of, of 2016 sentenced to eight years in prison and a $9.4 million fine. However, the Court of Appeal found this fine to be unreasonable and they lowered the fine to $1 million. Um, And in September of 2020, the Supreme Court of Canada granted him leave to appeal, which for those who don't know, the Supreme Court of Canada does not hear every appeal from our courts of appeal. They only hear uh, those matters which are of national public importance, um, and they can't hear everything. So they they are choosing. They're busy people. <laughs> they're busy. There's only nine of them. Um, so they're choosy, and this is this is something they've chosen. It hasn't. I don't believe it's been heard yet. There's no decision yet. Um, but it sounds like he will be having a appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, which will probably be live streamed and you can watch. Anything on Valieres's treatment in the legal system well what i thought was funny so he was convicted and as part of his sentence he had to pay back the money over a 10-year period or risk having his sentence extended and it just seems a little um like of a weird thing to include in his sentence because like if he's going to jail um for barrel rolling but his entire livelihood was barrel rolling. 
how is he supposed to pay that money back over the 10 years? So why not just give him a longer sentence? Like, it just seems like they're dangling a little carrot that's like impossible to achieve. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe he had a ton of assets and it's like possible, but it just, it just seemed like a little like of an inconsistency and a bit weird. Fair enough. So Etienne Saint-Pierre, he was the, the buyer. Well, he was the middleman, right? He was, he would buy from Valieras and he would ship out um, and export the product. Um, so he was accused of, so his role too, I don't know if we went into this in detail, but his role was to uh, buy the stolen syrup and he rebranded it as New Brunswick syrup. Um, they love our rebranding. <laughs> He, apparently he told the jury, these are both jury trials, which is interesting. Mm. He told the jury, you can't prove what tree the syrup came from. <laughs> uh, needless to say, he was found guilty of fraud and trafficking stolen goods. <laughs> apparently part of that, one of the evidence, part of the evidence, the Crown's evidence that came out was that he sent, I don't know who it was to, but he wrote, he wrote a letter on XK Export, which is his company, letterhead that called the Federation a bunch of assholes, comma, part of the mafia. Saying it like it is. I wonder if they thought, or he thought, because he was in New Brunswick, he would kind of be above or free from the law of Quebec. I wonder, um, and he also maintains his innocence that he didn't know where it was coming from, but it's like, dude, this, your entire business is... <laughs> And if you're in the industry, you know who you're buying from. Yeah. So I think. Uh, I mean, uh, well, I you're, know. well, you know, you're not buying from the Federation and you have yeah. to buy from the Federation. So there you go. That's yeah. A, yeah. You're just not going to. The defense isn't going to hold up. But I mean, I guess he probably thought he was in New Brunswick. That the rules of Quebec didn't apply to him, but uh, yeah, evidently not the case. Well, and I suppose the argument is different too. If you're just buying from, there's obviously a huge distinction. We're not equating the producers who sell on the black market their own product, which they put their own like hard labor into, right? That's like this is just they stole everybody's syrup. Like this is the reserve is belongs to everyone. So it's, I guess, if Etienne could have argued, Sir Saint Pierre could have argued that like he thought he was just buying from the black market, like normal with like, he was buying Valiera's, Valiera's product, mm -hmm. which he wasn't right. There's a, there's a distinction there. Um, sure. Sure. Which, you know, was not, uh, not taken kindly to He's also an older man. Like he was 73 mm -hmm. to be involved in this at that age. You got a lot of, well, he did. Also sharp. Yeah. <laughs> he also got like a, a significantly lighter sentence than the other guys involved. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, the fine was still comparable, but he, um, his, he didn't actually have to go to prison. It was a <laughs> home imprisonment sentence. So probably a, a good thing for him. Mm -hmm. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about some of the coverage <laughs> of this story. Cause not for any particular reason, other than I think it's really interesting. Um, some of you might have seen that Netflix series Dirty Money. This is one of the episodes in that series is on the heist. Really interesting, probably unsurprisingly, if you know anything about this series and how it operates, they definitely paint the Federation as the big bad villain. The reserve is like Fort Knox. Um, my favorite part of the episode is that they talk to one guy 
um, who's, who's a lawyer for one of the producers who's, I think she's been fined quite a bit because she sells, um, she doesn't sell through the reserve who calls himself a maple syrup lawyer. And I just, I laughed out loud when I was watching it last night like, under his name. I forget what his name is. I think his name is Hans Mercier. And it's like Hans Mercier, a maple syrup lawyer. Um, I loved that. I, I love that like, too. I hope this inspires kids to be maple syrup lawyers when they grow up. The lens of the episode is about, um, you do see a little bit of the pro-federation side. There's one pro-federation producer who is, he's connected to presidents of the federation who thinks that these people are complainers and he's like, boo friggin who, I'm going to shed a tear. Like this is a, this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And, um, but mostly like the lens of the series, I would, the episode I would say is like how this kind of top-down control breeds the desire for uh, a heist and it paints the people the producers just like fighting for freedom it's like freedom versus control what I think it's a really interesting episode of this show which is if you've watched the rest of the series there's episodes about VW there's episodes about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma um, it's it's and episodes about Trump season two is episodes about Jared Kushner it's about crises of capitalism. It's about capitalism run amok and capitalist exploitation. But this is kind of the opposite, right? This is this is um, exploitation coming from like a command and control system. Like it's a, from a command economic um, system. So it's mm-hmm. really interesting. It fits really weirdly with, and I don't think it really does fit in this series. And I think that of the rest of the big bad uh, capitalists who do some su- super egregious things in this series, I think the Federation, like they have to do a little bit more work to make the Federation to be this really, really big bad guy. Whereas like, who's arguing that the Sacklers are like meant well? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I agree with you on that. That's the, ex- the take I expected from you, but <laughs> um, I, I agree. I, I felt un I did feel unsatisfied that either party was like completely in the right because it does seem like um, the, the restrictions of the Federation have benefited uh, producers at large uh, to maintain consistent, pricing um and consistent you know product but i think that there is a lot of things that they're doing um that that are unfair to producers and imposing restrictions uh that are a little big brother-esque right i say i just don't think the federation is purdue pharma and I don't they're, think the Federation is Trump. And I don't think the Federation is the people at VW who marketed sh- a car as a green car and then literally like had software that would cheat the emissions test. But they I designed hear- it specifically to do that. Right. Listen, like it's just so they just have to do a little bit more massaging of the story to make them to be such a villain. Um, whereas right, I do but think like- we've tried to enter to introduce a little bit more nuance. Sure, sure. But that's not, uh, maybe that's why we're not Netflix worthy, you know? Well, yeah, but I also think that like at the end of the day, like it's, it's maple syrup, you know, like it's not an illegal um, activity, but they're making it 
illegal to, and they're making a black market because of how highly they're regulating it. Right. And, you know, I, I do kind of agree with the sellers in the sense that like, they're not, you know, producing cocaine they should as do i you know like they should have a little bit more autonomy so this was a big this is a big theft a big heist a big story this was picked up um i don't know globally but it was picked up in a lot of places including lots of american outlets um and everything all, all the coverage was about like how cute this heist was and how cute and canadian and i found it so annoying yeah <laughs> there's one vanity fair article in particular which really bugged me um and i'm not gonna i won't call out the journalist but it's just this depiction of us as like oh my god look at how cute the canadians are fighting over their syrup aren't they just adorable i'll read you a quick quote to give you a sense of what i mean um in fact the reserve which might hold 7.5 million gallons on a typical day is a warehouse filled with barrels white drums stacked from floor to ceiling nearly 20 feet high there was a Charles Sheeler like quality to the place, an industrial awesomeness, the barrels in endless rows, the implied weight of them, persticky and precise in a way that seems especially Canadian. I have no idea what that means. It's almost like the life we know, but not quite. Oh, yes, we're so exotic. It's so close, yet so different. A treasure trove with inventory at any time worth perhaps $185 million. The syrup is tested when it comes in, then sent through a Willy Wonka esque conveyor system where it's pasteurized and sealed in a barrel, forklift, and stacked i mean this just sounds like a warehouse it's just i don't really get the comparison to the willy wonka factory if i'm being honest like i heard that a couple times and i'm like it's just uh, a factory yeah like because what happened because it willy wonka's factory has like crazy stuff happen do you know what i mean like i just don't understand the like the comparison like at willy wonka's factory there are like blueberries you can't eat or they turn you into a blueberry and there's oompa loompas like this is just a regular warehouse you know what i mean it's how there's something whimsical and cute about canadians that's what i hear yeah i just don't it makes no sense like it no makes no sense the persnickety and precise in a way that seems especially canadian too i'm like these are stereotypes that are new to me like i listen Uh, i thought i'd heard it all i thought i'd heard it all like i just don't know what this means um if i have to read uh, the, the the best part about this being done now is that I never have to read talk about a sticky situation ever again. Hopefully, oh god, um, sticky situation I think should be retired now because it's yeah. in every article. It also just kind this. of bothered me because there was nothing sticky about it. Do you know what I mean? Like there was no like there was no spill. No, there was Where's no the spill. stickiness. There was no, no stickiness. stickiness. It's you know? water now. No, yeah, doesn't like, make sense. It yeah, it distinctly doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, I just like I think that probably the story became very marketable because it was like um what's the word i'm looking for um bought into the canary canadian stereotypes that like you think of it's like oh maple syrup drink maple Canada. syrup all the time yeah. yeah um which is probably why like it, it it probably did also help like the marketability of this story mm-hmm. um, but it was incredibly annoying i i found to listen to everybody just talk about like oh, those Canadians, isn't that so funny? The maple syrup. It's like, no, this is a really serious heist. People went to jail for this heist. Like, this is serious stuff. And I didn't, for that reason, I didn't want to do this episode until I started looking into it. And I was like, oh, this is a semi-sophisticated heist where, you know, almost $20 million of product was stolen. I was like, 
But before that, I wasn't really sure it was worth doing because I was just like, oh, you know, let's be the Canadian podcast doing the maple syrup heist. But, you know, I'm glad we did it. Even if I had to stomach sticky situation again and again. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention there's also been a few other maple syrup thefts in history. Obviously, this is a record breaker, but in 2006, thieves took about 103, sorry, $1.3 million from a stockpile that um, I think the thieves were fighting over with the owner, but there was, you know, a million dollars of syrup stolen not too long ago. In August of 2014, thieves stole 20,000 liters of syrup valued at $150,000 from a storage facility near Montreal's airport. So it's, uh, won't be the last time I'm sure somebody still syrup. No, apparently they have improved the security at the Federation's uh, warehouses, um, probably for insurance purposes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, de- I definitely think it could happen again. I definitely think it could happen again. Something else I wanted to mention was, um, so of course this is, as we've talked about, has renewed criticism of the Federation and people are kind of being like, look, of course this happened. People were going crazy. Like you can't just star producers like this and just maintain this big brother like level of control and think people aren't going to find a way um in 2015 quebec's minister of agriculture pierre paradis commissioned a report on the federation and on the industry um the report uh is lengthy but it among other things it calls on the federation to loosen its rules scrap the quotas um and in a really in a response to Quebec's declining position as the world leader in maple syrup, right? Uh, Quebec is the only place in the world where it's this tightly monitored. And accordingly, it's probably not surprising that producers in Ontario, New Brunswick, and in the States, the States are a serious threat, are making real inroads in the industry. And with American maple syrup production growing at 10% per year, people are estimating that US production will surpass Quebec in the next 10 years. So, I mean, um, the report, which was authored, uh, which was commissioned by the minister, but authored by Florent Gagné, who's the former head of um, Quebec's provincial police, called for the scrapping of the quotas and and these changes, um, in part because he thinks it's like heavy handed and unreasonable. He calls the regime of the Federation autocratic and a reign of fear um, because, and he was surprised interviewing people about just how afraid people are of the regulation and people were like afraid to speak to him. I'm sorry, or afraid of the Federation and people were literally afraid to speak to him. And I think that really, that seemed to really struck him. Um, But it's also as a matter of, because of the competition that we're seeing from other producers, that's why they're seriously considering uh, changing the system, but nothing's really happened. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be very difficult to unwind, I think, for a lot of reasons. And also, I don't know if we said this, but there's a long – there's a wait list to get into the Federation too. Like there's people knocking on their door trying to get in. Um, And I I don't know why they have a wait list, why they don't let everybody in or or what's up with that. But people want to get in. And so I think like – if there continues to be sufficient interest in having the Federation, it's going to be very difficult to just demand, dismantle it. And the people who have been re- relying on stable income um, may struggle. But if yeah. people are well, empowered to manage their own reserves and manage their own surpluses when they have them. Um, 
And also, like I said before, like they, the reserve uh, syrup that they have hasn't been paid for uh, to the producers. So <laughs> the people who are in the Federation have a vested interest in staying in the Federation until they get their money for all, of, you know, it, it could be like, who knows how much that, that each producer has in, in the reserves, right? And they obviously mm-hmm. want to get paid for that. Um, so that, I think that's, uh, it makes it even harder to it. It's like another layer to keep people invested. Uh, climate change too is really threatening. Uh, maple syrup production, warming temperatures, loss of snowpack um, is a real threat. Like the process requires very specific temperature conditions just to overgeneralize like you need daytime highs above freezing and nighttime highs below freezing to um, to create the pressure differences that encourage sap to flow from the trees. And we're getting like that period of time where that you have that change in pressure is becoming shorter and shorter. And in 20, I mean, in 2012, maple production fell by 54% in Ontario and 15, and 12.5% in Canada overall because of an unusually warm spring. So as we see temperatures change, it's going to become more and more difficult um, to even survive in this industry. And they might need the reserve more and more. That's interesting. Well, not necessarily the Federation's reserve, but a reserve. Or a Federation Uh, run like that, like such a watchdog, you know? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's interesting. I also forgot to say something before about um, the trials. Well, and kind of the, one of the, the blunders of the heist was that in their laziness, they didn't, when they transferred the maple syrup, they didn't transfer it into barrels that were 100% clean. And so as a result, the maple syrup that they ended up selling was making people sick. And that was part of um, part of their sentence um, and why the judge, I think, imposed uh, such harsh sentences on them is because they actually kind of caused a public health crisis in some ways. My God. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? That is terrible. So, yeah. So, uh, so whether or not you buy into the narrative about kind of the Robin Hood story of stealing from the rich and uh, giving to the poor kind of idea, there was also this other side of it that was um, a, a little bit more serious, a little bit more dangerous. So, yeah, I don't know if it's a Robin Hood story. I don't know what kind of story it is because they're stealing from the rich and giving to themselves, but there's a definitely a, like a kind of like yeah like rebel story like hey mm-hmm. fuck you i'm gonna steal your syrup that you've been stealing yeah. from all of us for years um yeah he shared the profits with other producers maybe valieras would be our yeah. robin hood but i just think what's like a villain that like steals <laughs> all of them a theft a lot of them yeah i think it's just this one's just a theft <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, you know, you want to, I think the difficult thing is like, in this case, it really is fighting fire with fire. And so there's not really someone who comes out clean as, no. as the villain or comes out clean as the hero. Like it's, everybody's done things that are very problematic on both sides. And it's a huge mess. And <laughs> there's no end in sight for the mess. No end in sight. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review about how much you love listening to the podcast and tell us what you'd like to hear next.
We are on Twitter at Just Watch Me Pod. You can email us at Just Watch Me Podcast at gmail.com. And we are on Instagram as at Just Watch Me Pod. Yeah, we're on all the socials. So come say hi to us. And we will, until then, see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>